0: Welcome to Leaders of Analytics. Leaders of Analytics is about data-driven decision-making, modern business leadership and the use of data and artificial intelligence in business and society. Each episode investigates the strategies, tools, techniques and leadership required To succeed in a world increasingly driven by data and analytics, the show's guests share their stories and experiences in a way that helps you understand the big concepts and small details that make all the difference in today's world of business. I am your host, Jonas Christensen. And I hope you enjoy listening to this episode of Leaders of Analytics. As the digital landscape evolves, privacy concerns and regulations are becoming increasingly important for advertisers. With the decline of third-party cookies and the rise of individual data usage consent, measuring advertising attention is more crucial than ever. One of the biggest challenges for advertisers in a cookie-less world is being able to accurately measure the effectiveness of their campaigns. Without cookies, it's harder to track user behavior and understand how their ads are performing. However, measuring advertising attention through alternative methods such as viewability, brand lift studies, and surveys can be helpful, but they provide vague and delayed signals about advertising effectiveness. How can advertisers measure the attention and effectiveness of their advertising in real time? To answer this question, I recently spoke to John Hawkins, who is the chief scientist at Playground XYZ. Playground XYZ provides a machine learning-based platform for measuring and maximizing attention on digital ads. The company's attention intelligence platform is a unique technology that uses over 40 different signals to track user attention as it happens. In this episode of Leaders of Analytics, we discuss how Playground's attention measurement platform works in practice, the importance of attention time in a world without cookies, where privacy and consent are increasingly of mandated importance, dealing with complexities of multi-laid machine learning pipelines and convincing stakeholders of their value, and how data science professionals can foster the right non-data science skills that will help them become true unicorns, and much more. Let's get to it. Here's John. John Hawkins, welcome to Leaders of Analytics.
1: Thank you, Jonas. Great to see you.
0: Yeah, I'm very excited to have you on the show. And listeners, John and I have known each other for a few years, and I know that John is guaranteed for a very interesting episode today. And John, I won't steal your thunder because we want to hear from you, not me. So let's just kick off and uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about yourself, your career background and what you do.
1: Wonderful, Jonas. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me here. It's, it's great to talk to you. And as I said, we've always gotten along well and had good conversations. So I'm really looking forward to this. My background's probably a little bit unusual for a lot of people in data science, although that's what's usual, I in that I started in computer engineering, but I actually dropped out because at the time I didn't know that that's what I wanted and I wanted to play in bands and just sort of and do other things in life. And during that period, I ended up studying philosophy at the University of Newcastle, and I was lucky enough to study under a couple of professors who both came from physical science. So one of them had been a quantum physicist, the other had been an engineer, and that got me really interested in – so you get this chance to sort of think about how science works and how it relates to the world and how we know the world, how it is that knowledge is possible. And then because later parts of those coursework were focused on say like chaos theory and complex systems and artificial intelligence it sort of can laid the groundwork for me to go okay yes computer science is really what I want to do because when you're a generalist like me you're interested in lots of stuff computer science and what has become data science is a great way to sort of contribute and participate in lots of different kinds of projects so that's kind of my background which is why I say it's a bit perhaps a bit unusual.
0: Yeah, and you, you're highlighting something interesting there, which is you've probably got the program running in your head in terms of you, you've got a curious mind, but, but where it gets pointed in life, it's really a lot to do with the teachers you meet on your path, that you can have good ones and bad ones that either attract you or detract you from some topic. So we think we're all these rational human beings all the way through, but it, it's a lot of that stuff along the way.
1: A lot of happy accidents.
0: Absolutely. And as a happy accident, you ended up in data science. Perhaps tell us a little bit about how that happened in your career in data science to date. Yeah.
1: Yeah, 100%. So after that, I eventually went and focused purely on machine learning and AI. And I did a PhD in applied AI, where I was building models to predict where proteins move around the cell. So that's essentially when proteins are produced in the cell, they have a thing called a targeting peptide, which is a little part of the protein that tells the cell, hey, you have to move it over here or you have to move it over there. And it's an indicator of the function of the protein. And luckily for me, as a part of that process, I got to work with wet lab biologists. So often, we'd be building models. Say they've they've sequenced thousands of proteins, we build models to say, okay, we think these ones are likely to be mitochondrial proteins, or these ones are likely to be embedded in the cell membrane, and then they maybe go and do experiments to try and to sort of elucidate whether that was the case. So it gave me this experience not only with building models, but also working with people for whom those models were critical to sort of find, discovering new knowledge or to sort of, at the very least, reducing the costs of running those wet lab experiments. So I know the reason I say that is because that's kind of one of these critical parts of doing data science. It's not just the analytical component. It's about how does that interface with something that people care about and give either real world results in terms of either knowledge discovery or sort of efficiency. So when I spilled out of academia, I ended up like a lot of graduates at the time into ad tech. So predicting who's going to click on what, but I had a sort of a circular move through Commonwealth Bank and a bunch of other companies. But really it was spending a bit of time in universities, doing this machine learning work in different cases, and then coming out in industry and say, okay, who needs stuff predicted? And and advertising happened to be the most common place that that happened at the time.
0: Yeah. And since then, you've done that in quite a few organizations but today you're the chief scientist at playground xyz right so this is a company that maybe is not that well known to a lot of people but it's it's a reasonably sizable company actually i'd say could you tell us about the company what it does and the problems you solve for your customers there
1: yeah, so Playground XYZ was an Australian startup. We've actually been acquired by an American company called GumGum, who are sort of a who do many, many different interesting things in the advertising world. But Playground started as what's called a rich media company. So the founders were interested in building what are predominantly JavaScript frameworks for building interesting advertising. And the reason for doing this is because premium publishers need to differentiate themselves from the kind of the long tail of cheap advertising. They want to give if you advertise on the city morning herald or news.com.au they want to demonstrate that you're getting good value for money rich media is one of the ways they do this and then at some point in the company's evolution they realise, well the reason we sell these rich media ads is really because we say that they get more attention. We probably need to start proving this. And so that started them down the track of how can we measure the attention on our ads and demonstrate that they get more attention than other ads. So that spawned this whole other arm of the company that I work for, where we build a stack for measuring the amount of attention on ads and then doing other things like optimizing attention, helping companies sort of buy, either design their creatives better or buy better inventory to To get the sort of the amount of attention on their ads they need to get what they're looking for, which usually sort of sales, conversions, signups, that kind of thing.
0: Yeah. And I encourage listeners to go to Playground's website and actually look at some of these quite interactive content that's on there as examples of how advertising can be displayed online. So rather than sort of a flat image, it, it really interacts with you when you scroll and when you're using a web page. So it is actually quite engaging. So it's interesting that you say that that came before the machine learning. It, it explains a lot to me. We'll, we'll dig into that as we go through the episode. Because John, we're not quite done learning about you because you are the chief scientist at Playground. Could you tell us about That role? What does the chief scientist do? What are your goals? What are your responsibilities and sort of regular activities in a week?
1: Yeah, so I don't know exactly how representative it would be of the same role in other organizations, but I can kind of give you a sense of why Playground felt they needed it. And it's, it's, there's kind of two arms to it. One was as they started building a part of the organisation, which was essentially machine learning led, it was basically a bunch of different models for making these predictions about attention on advertising. Initially, they'd been doing a lot of work with external consultants, but they wanted someone who'd been spending a lot of time with machine learning to sort of, as they started building up that team and expanding out the product suite to sort of have oversight for all those machine learning models. And the second arm of that is more about the kind of research component because one of the, I guess, the difficulties of building a business on top of pure analytics, in a sense, is that you need to be able to justify it. So in a sense, you need to be publishing research, writing papers, helping your clients design studies so that they're convinced that your technology does what you say it's going to do. So that's the kind of the second arm of about it. It's sort of, it reuses some of the skills I got when I used to work as an academic of having to sort of write project proposals, outline a set of experiments, why we did them sort of justify everything we do when we're building that entire machine learning stack. So responsibilities, sorry, I didn't answer the whole question. (laughs) Responsibilities are things like, I mean, I'm still on the tools. We're still, even though we've grown a lot, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. So I still do machine learning, actively building models, but it's also about hiring people. So I spend a lot of time sort of interviewing people, mentoring people, making sure projects are on track, and then more and more, as well as sort of writing these papers and and research pieces, there's also an element of something that's sort of new to me, writing North Star papers. So because I'm sure you're familiar with the larger an organisation gets, it's really hard to make sure everyone's aligned on all the, how all the little subtle technical decisions might influence other parts of the organisation. And the potential impacts on the quality of our attention models that small engineering decisions might make is something that we need to keep an eye on. So we're trying to solve that rather than through sort of an autocracy, more through sort of these North Star papers where people have a sense of, oh, this is how... How the work that I do influences the greater goal.
0: Yeah, interesting. And I think the complexity of system interaction is really amplified when we're talking about machine learning because it's a moving object all the time. And it's really the data that is the code in a sense. So I I can imagine it being even more difficult when you have a product or platform like yours that is, is highly machine learning driven. Now, John, let's learn a bit about what you sell what your solution is at playground because you've sort of alluded to it a little bit there's this interactive creative that you can you, you create or you can create using your platform but you also have this attention measurement platform so could you tell us how that works in practice sort of what's under the hood of it what can users get from it
1: yeah so I can tell a little bit of a story about it too because I think the origin is somewhat interesting. But This is before I joined when they were first thinking about we should be measuring attention on ads because that would help us build the case for the quality of our rich media. Actually, if you don't mind, there's not too much I can say about the rich media component because I'm not a creative technologist myself. I think the best explanation is sort of is for the listeners to say go to any sort of major Australian publisher website and you'll encounter these kind of ads that are not like the standard ads they might sort of say if you hover over them they expand or there's some kind of interesting animation or they might occupy the sides of the screen if you're on a desktop for example those are what we typically mean by rich media and it's a kind of it's an ongoing race to build better ways of building those ads but on the attention measurement front they initially were thinking about getting headsets so we'd have people come into the office put on a headset and measure attention that way that's how it's it's traditionally done in a lot of academic studies. The problem, of course, with that is that it's both expensive to run and typically the sample sizes will be small, but also you're asking people to consume media and, and coming to conclusions in, in a somewhat artificial environment. And luckily for us, at around that time, there was a sort of ongoing massive explosion of different kinds of computer vision models, including some really nice research papers showing that you could build convolutional neural network based models for predicting sort of fixation position on the screen just from photos of people's faces as they were using a mobile application So the team was, they were able to sort of reuse that open source, those papers, build their own version and their own application. And it was originally an iOS app that could run these panels where people basically, there's a bunch of these digital worker sites like Clickworker and others, maybe AWS people would be familiar with Mechanical Turk, where people get... Remunerated for doing some kind of digital task. In our case, it's download our app onto your iOS, give permission for us to track your eyes for 20 minutes, half an hour, and then read these newspapers from our list. And then we'll sort of pay you. And then you delete the app and turn off the eye tracking. So it's basically consent driven, remunerated eye tracking media studies, but done on people's own devices in their own homes in a more natural environment. And we can do it at scale. So we can instantly turn it on and measure how much attention ads get in different countries on different websites, etc. So it's the scale advantage is massive. So that part of our stack has continued to expand. So we've got other eye tracking technologies on different platforms. But one of the other key insights that Graham Burton, who's one of our sort of like our head of data and product, had realized was that you could at the same time as you're collecting these eye-tracking data, you could also collect all these other sort of behavioural points about how people are interacting with a page that will then allow you to potentially predict the amount of attention an ad got later on in the wild when you don't have the eye-tracking turned on. So this is where these, as I spoke to you previously about these multiple stages of machine learning are, we use the survey panels to collect data about real eye-tracking and we do that at scale in as many different environments as we can. And then we collect other behavioral and contextual information about how the user interacts with a web page that allows us to then predict the amount of attention that happens on real ads in the wild. And that's effectively our measurement platform. So using our tag, clients can attach that tag to their own ads when they're running inventory everywhere, get an indication of how much attention their ads are getting. And then we can start to optimize it. We can sort of choose to tune the which particular media we purchase to optimize optimize attention or even choose which creatives are working better and optimize that way. So it's that's the final stack. You sort of you build the data set to understand how attention works, you build a model that allows you to do it at scale and then you get value from it by sort of improving your decision making.
0: Yeah, it's pretty clever really. And if I paraphrase so I make sure that I understand and hopefully then that also helps listeners. You collect on this group of opt-in subjects from mechanical Turk or whatever. Yeah, Uh, You collect eye tracking, but also 39 other variables. And then when you are in the wild, you can collect those 39 other variables or close to that sort of number. And you take out the eye tracking, but all the other confounding factors will, will interact in a way that you can say that when people are doing this, they're probably looking over here with some level of statistical significance and probability. And therefore, you can infer what kind of eye contact they're having with the screen. Is that correct? 100%. Exactly. So pretty clever. And it really shows, I think, a very practical use of machine learning in the day-to-day business world. It's not just about talking robots and all this stuff. This is actually a, a very practical Optimization exercise that, nevertheless, has a scientific approach behind it, but also a fair bit of grunt work from you and the team. So you use this then to also optimize your actual creatives. I assume you can tinker with with the things that are displayed on an ad to measure the difference and so on. Is is that right?
1: Yeah. So the what we call our activations team, which is the the people who do creative execution and we really work at the that sort of that front edge of building new rich media formats. They can use the attention measurement. So one of the things they built themselves their own tool to look at points in, say, a video ad where it's getting more attention or not. So if you look across sort of hundreds or thousands of impressions of that video ad and look at where the mean attention to each frame is going up or down, you have a sense potentially of what it is that's drawing viewers back to look at the ad when they've maybe been looking away at some other content. And that could be, there's many ways to analyze that. So they, they're always coming up with ways to use the, our attention data to th- think about and analyze creative execution, which is the advertising term for the, the content of the ad.
0: Yep. So John, million dollar question. Yeah. Why should we care about attention? Why is that such an important metric compared to lots of other metrics that we use? Click-through rates, all that sort of thing.
1: Yeah. So there's a couple of things to think about. So Advertising is broadly broken into what we sort of call performance and brand-based advertising. So in performance advertising, you're typically looking to get a direct impact, which maybe could be a conversion or a sign-up to your newsletter, et cetera. And that's where click-through rates really, really matter because you're trying, you know, there's a sort of direct causal pathway from the ad to the thing you're trying to achieve. And so a lot of ad technology has been focused on optimising that performance And we have, even though we have seen an ability to have an impact on that, that's less of our concern. We're more focused on the brand advertising and brand advertising is more subtle because particularly for brands that are for large scale sort of decisions that people make, like say purchasing a new car or which bank to get a mortgage from, but even sort of, you know, irregular ones, like say maybe even purchasing a new computer that are more Common, but still somewhat irregular than than sort of standard purchases. There's a much more importance in getting what is often called mental availability. So another kind of sidetrack here there's a the world of marketing science has had many sort of fads over the years but we at Playground we've been heavily influenced by the Ehrenberg Bass Institute which is an Australian institute for studying market science and they they're quite famous for sort of upsetting the apple cart of marketing science somewhat effectively saying a lot of the things that have been said in this discipline are essentially rubbish and really brand advertising is in some sense, fairly simple. You're basically trying to make sure that you're building what they call mental availability so that people are aware of your brand and that your product is available, so physical availability of the product, so that when they come, when it comes time for them to purchase it, there is a good chance that your brand will be in their mind and they'll they'll choose to purchase it. So they sort of they're famous for debunking notions like brand loyalty and and all these kind of things, saying that it's mostly nonsense, if not completely nonsense, and that really it's about just building that mental availability. So from that kind of launching pad, the, our thinking is that there's also a bunch of research that's looking at how really to get mental availability, people have to be paying attention to ads. It's There's a kind of a pathway from someone either looking at or listening to an ad, cognitively processing it to build that mental model of this is not just what the brand is, but what sector it fits in so that that brand can be called to mind when they want to make that purchase. So there's a kind of fundamental marketing reason why attention matters, because to get to mental availability, you have to pay attention to it. Now, there's a lot of different opinions, as you might imagine, about what attention means and what, how much attention you need and and how does that work. Our focus is on visual, direct visual attention. So, because we think that being able to measure where someone's pupils are fixated is the strongest possible indication that they're mentally paying attention to that thing. You can't, it's much harder, even though there are people who do sort of, there's different kinds of studies for working out when someone's thinking about something, Direct visual attention is much easier to measure. And because the vast majority of advertising is visual, it gives us a really, really strong signal to whether or not someone is actually likely have to remember that brand. And that, and that comes out because we, as you might imagine, Building and releasing an analytics product, we have to do a lot of work with clients to convince them that it's not just sort of smoke and mirrors, yeah? So they they need to believe that it actually works. So two pathways to that. We often run brand survey results where we'll, after running advertising, we'll survey a certain amount of, of participants to get a sense of what how their opinion about a brand or even just their ability to remember the brand has changed. But also, we encourage clients to look at things like, can they get a sense of whether conversions or some other kind of metric they look at has been impacted by looking at campaigns that get higher attention than others. Does that make sense?
0: It does. It does to me. And I'm sitting here thinking, John, that you're actually doing the marketing industry a huge favor. This sounds very obvious because you've come up with something that's useful there, but I think in the last 25 years of digitization where advertising has in large part moved online and where we therefore own a digital format and we therefore can measure click through rates. We can measure clicks on uh, pixels or ads or uh, images or whatever it is. And also website interactions and so on. It has become more interesting to play with all that data. And see what happens and actually track people through, as opposed to the bit of marketing that we can't really measure that well, which is let's spend $10 million on an ad campaign that's on TV and billboards and other places and just see what happens. And we don't really know. And we say that we have these sort of further away, almost pseudo vanity metrics of uh, brand awareness and consideration that's sort of our vague measures for did that campaign actually work yeah but you're bringing some of that element of analysis and analytics and data points into the actual advertising itself that that means that level at an analytical level it can compete with the stuff that has clicks and and all that stuff and and links sitting underneath that you can measure and i've seen it many times in board rooms where marketing executives are trying to sell to the CEO of finance that we should do this campaign that's really important for our brand. But it's a bit vague for, for the people who are very concrete and, and, and numbers driven. And you can't tell me what my ROI on that campaign will be exactly, or what's the cost per acquisition of each customer when I put a TV ad on. It just seems very expensive that I got to spend 10 million on this. So you're sort of bringing that in to play here. I think quite interesting. And for someone like me, who's analytically driven, it makes brand advertising a whole lot more interesting all of a sudden. So uh, that, that's my observation, and it did make sense uh, to answer your question. And let's dig into it a little bit more, uh, because I'm, I'm interested in in this in a world too, where we have cookies going away, and where we also have sort of privacy and consent being increasingly mandated and increasingly important and some organizations like apple for instance are sort of being proactive about protecting consumers from being tracked around the internet basically what you are putting out in the world here your solution how critical is that around this change how important is it for advertisers and how are they responding to these challenges today
1: So it's a great question. And it's an interesting thing that in the industry, it's called the death of the cookie, that this sort of the the fact that cookies and tracking people is going to go away. And it's been sort of various vendors have been sort of postponing it more and more because they recognize that large amounts of the digital advertising economy has been built up on top of the cookie. For those of you who are not familiar with it, it's this idea that you can place a small bit of a code or text file on a person's computer when they browse a website that allows you to sort of know things about them when they come back. But actually, there's various tricky ways people have come up with for using that to track people across the internet. So say if you're a large media conglomerate and you own many, many different websites, you can sort of collate that data and have a sense of how the same person navigates around the internet. And so the reason that's important is because large amounts of the analytics used for targeting people has been built up on following them around the internet and saying, okay, this person's interested in what could it be? Mixed martial arts and sports cars. You know, we know that we can target them with say Deus Ex ads, for example, perhaps it's like a good fit there. So they'll build up profiles of people based on this behavior data. And that's, built up this entire technology suite of how you target people and get effective advertising. So the problem is, of course, when you take away all of the tracking, that whole house of cards collapse because you don't, you, the entire way you think about who to market to is built on top of following people around. So our, our way of thinking about this is that ultimately this gives us a new way of building a new framework for advertising where you're going to have to, when you run an ad, you'll be able to go through an initial measurement phase where you get a sense of, where is your ad getting more attention when you put it in the in the car sites or in the fashion sites or in the sports sites? Where is it getting more attention? Which of those formats is attracting more attention? And that allows you to fine tune where your media spend goes. And so we've spent a lot of time doing sort of research on this. And one of the things that's interesting about it is that we sort of expected, I I guess, a kind of general assumption in the advertising industry had been that the the contexts in which certain brands do well should be kind of obvious that if you're nike you advertise in sport and if you're estate lauder you advertise in beauty and fashion for example but one of the things that we see is that actually that's not the case Probably most of the time that actually there are subtleties to that that certain ads will do better in different contexts. Maybe not entirely surprising contexts, but there's you could say there's a sort of a, maybe a suite of contexts and where your creative is performing best will change over time. And one of the things, as we've kind of been digging into some of the research around this, one of the things is there's 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 various kinds of trade offs because you have to remember that your advertising exists in an ecosystem of all your other competitors' ads who are all appearing on the same kind of media. So one of the things that often can be a driver of getting attention is simply if your ad's unexpected. So if Nike tries to add on a sports site and people have already seen three sneaker ads, it's not going to drive that much attention. Whereas if Estee Lauder suddenly pops up there in that site, it's unexpected and maybe we'll get more attention. And then, of course, it just there has to be some kind of synergy between what that brand is and what that site is to, in some sense to make sense. But that's not it's not always very intuitive what that's going to be. So we found that you can run large scale experiments just to try and understand that relationship between the brand, the execution of the creative and the context. I'm not sure if I answered the question actually
0: I? <laughs> I liked the content nevertheless it was it was interesting, John and and I think it, it highlights something subtle here because what you're describing to a large extent is the outcome of experimentation. You mentioned experimentation yourself, but the importance of that, because as human beings, we we tend to start with logical reasoning. Nike should go to a sports site where they sell shoes because people are looking for shoes. So wouldn't it be most likely that if you go on Runner's World's website, that people there are going to be really interested in that ad? Well, guess what? Those Runner's World's people are also looking at other websites and you we can get them there maybe. But you only find out which ones actually do the trick when you experiment. So it's a thing that really businesses really need to think long and hard about. How do you create this experimental culture in your organization? And John, I imagine that that's something that you, not use personally maybe, but your organization, your team also have to really sort of try and and coach your clients and your customers on to actually be comfortable experimenting a bit? Is that something that you actively do as an organization to sort of convince clients to step a little bit outside their, yeah, you can almost call it a comfort zone, their sort of logical line in the sand for
1: where they can advertise? Yeah, absolutely. So we're definitely engaged in that. But as you might imagine, it, it's not easy, in part because we're not, always seen as a kind of an impartial third party you, because so experimentation for us would be purchasing fairly wide amounts of inventory which is of course good for us so it's a slow process we ha- you we have to sort of encourage experimentation within boundaries the client is familiar with uh, they're comfortable with so that they can see that the op- have the optimization process actually works for them and then they can gradually get more and more comfortable with with sort of testing broader as they begin.
0: Yeah. So small experiments, but you probably make the money back in the long run by knowing this information. Yeah. So John, one of the things that you alluded to earlier was that you actually have a machine learning pipeline sitting underneath all this Yeah. that is running multiple models that are sort of a chain of each other, right? They're depending on each other. So one model's output is another model's input. You're doing eye tracking first, then you're using that as a variable in in subsequent machine learning models. What kind of additional challenges does this cause for you as an organization and for you as an individual in what you do and, and how do you deal with these these challenges?
1: Yeah, it's really hard. Like I think it would be fair to say that there's a lot of data scientists I've known over the years who would probably who just who who are really uncomfortable with these kind of situations. I mean, and for and the main reason being they know that that they feel comfortable with talking about how the error in one particular model has an impact on the business and they can kind of quantify that. But as soon as you start having p- potential for one model's error feeding into another model to another model, it's it becomes very, very difficult to sort of track and feel comfortable with. So I think it's certainly challenging, but I think there's a couple of strategies around it. So the ideal strategy, you have labeled data for the full end-to-end. So say for example, you, you, you know, this model, the model here, the first model is trained to, to predict X from some set of inputs, and then that X is now an input to predict Y in the second model, but you've got labelled data for that, et cetera, down the chain. But you may also have a data set you've labelled that has the full input and then what the final output's going to be. So that at least allows you to, well, of course, it raises the question, why don't you predict that to begin with? I mean, there can be other reasons that, uh, sort of surrounding this cost of getting that, of labelling that data, for example. The challenging one for us is that you in some sense, we are relying on the process by which we validate the eye tracking is that we have to ask the panellists to fixate on certain regions of the screen for a certain period of time. And we have ways of testing as to, you know, whether they've done that partly statistical ways. But we can see that that allows us to see if the eye tracking is either just slightly off and we can recalibrate it, or if it's just kind of random. So there's something about their lighting conditions or their device, which means that it's not working. So we can throw that data away. So we go through this process of understanding and cleansing and calibrating that data. And then one of the things that gives us is an understanding of the error distribution for the eye tracking. So we're able to use simulation as a way of understanding it because then you can say, because for us, we don't have that label data of we know that this person looked at this ad for exactly 3 seconds, 3.2 seconds, for example. There's no way to sort of label that data. We can sort of try and generate it ourselves and we will do that. But then we could also look, given that we know very, very We have strong understandings of the error distribution on the eye tracking direct component. We can simulate how that's going to the expected error on the gaze duration, like the amount of attention you get on the ads. So we can quantify the expected error through simulation. That's obviously, it's a lot harder to do. And it's, as I'm sure you're also aware of, it's hard enough getting organisations to trust machine learning models, let alone get them to trust simulations. But I think we will get there because ultimately, Simulation is a great way to, like, you know, as long as you're upfront with the assumptions you've made, it's a great way to understand and test the the kind of limitations of a system.
0: Yeah, it sounds like, if nothing else, you're being you're being very very thorough about the approach, and there is no easy way to tackle those challenges. So thoroughness is <laughs> kind of the way to do that. John, so, the other thing that comes to mind for me here is that what you're doing is actually creating a product out of machine learning models right there is an interface for this uh, a software tool right that that then on underneath has all this stuff running and if we go sort of step back a little bit from your organization to the broader data science community uh, there's this increasing need for Data scientists to play a really active role in user experience design and product design, which really is also a very large part of your remit, uh, I imagine, uh, by default, because you're building something that will be interacted with by users. So, w- what is your advice to listeners here on how to foster the right non data science skills that will make these data scientists true unicorns in that sense of? Being able to piece together our whole process end to end.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think the first thing is is to always keep in mind is to maintain humility. I think striving to be a unicorn is, of course, a great goal, but you should also remember that it's a somewhat, you know, it's a the, the title is not intended to mean that you're an expert in everything. It's,
0: I use that term because that is what all the job ads are
1: looking for. Uh, not they don't use the word, but it's pretty much it. Yeah.
0: And, um, yes, yeah, so, let's so take the term loosely.
1: So I think humility, just always recognising that it, no matter how fast you've learned these things, you won't be an expert in them. So it's always good to have people around to consult with. But I would say actually the core, I think perhaps the underemphasized core skill of a data scientist should be the art of both asking questions in a kind of like a, in a dialogue and then building a mental model of the system that you're trying to work with. So it's about, and you're never, you, it's not like you're going to build a perfect mental model because you aren't, you haven't been sort of had that deep industry experience, but there is a kind of art to being up to mentally sketch a schematic. So you understand where all the crucial kind of weight bearing joists are, for example. So, and I think that applies more broadly. I think you can be effective in many different problems, in many, many different domains, if you actively cultivate that skill of asking questions, thinking about what's been said to you, Don't be afraid to say you don't understand if you don't understand. And also ask questions back for clarification and try and, in a sense, like as you ask the question and hear the response, you build a mental model. If something doesn't gel with what you've seen before or your understanding of other things, ask questions to get more clarifying information. And I think that applies to getting good or getting sort of the fundamentals in any new skill. Asking questions to people who know how to do it well is a really good way to get there.
0: Yeah. And I ask you this question, John, because when I look at your career, you have started out by doing very sort of complex things in in different industries, right? So you talk to us about the protein simulation. Again, I assume that you're not a biologist or were an expert in how proteins interact inside the body. And there are probably very few people who really are experts like that. And so it's a hugely, hugely, hugely complex topic in itself, but being able to to create simulation, of, simulations of the same, it really requires that the cross-functional co- collaboration, as as we call it in, in the corporate world, right, that's, we, we're trying to connect different skill sets up and, and your ability to step into someone else's shoes there and, and try and think and understand how they think and think like them. It's really critical and you've then not done that in other industries. And when, when we met, you were also in, in some more of a consulting role where you were probably doing that in lots of different domains, industries, businesses, and so on. And now in this world, I think for listeners, uh, John's not saying that without having lots of experience in applying uh, the same thing. So, and I, and I couldn't agree with you more. It's that sort of natural curiosity and and wanting to, to step into the problem and really think about the problem from any angles that really make someone more unicorny than the person who, who doesn't sort of do that. Now, John, we've now started talking a little bit about product design around machine learning models. And so why don't we unpack that a little bit more? Because Playground's products are actually these software solutions that are built on top of machine learning models, as we just agreed. And with That comes probably some very unique challenges because this is a very uh, different business as opposed to other businesses in this world. You know, I think there's sort of a, there's almost a machine learning ecosystem where there's some different business models that exist, right? There is more generic platforms, there's software solutions you can get, you can purchase where you then, they sort of produce generic models and you can customize that to your own needs. You can get consulting services and so on. You're actually, creating this somewhat black box and then selling that to someone else and saying, this is really good with our stamp of of approval on it. Uh, You've already alluded to some of the challenges around convincing people that it is not just uh, smoke mirrors, but what other challenges are unique to this sort of business?
1: So there's many different challenges. I mean, one of the challenges that we'll face, and in fact, anyone who's familiar with us Some of our competitors would obviously, one of the things they'd immediately latch onto is the fact that we've historically done rich media as well as as measure it. So it's, if you're not seen as independent, that's an immediate sort of avenue that people can attack you from. So you have to make a massive effort culturally inside the organization to split those parts of the organization. And you see this in the big players, like Google has been very famous for this, for making sure that the advertising component being separate from the search component so that there was no kind of sort of bleed over there and other all of the big tech companies who faced any of these kind of potential criticisms have done it and it's partly you, you you want to partly create that so that you can fend off any criticisms from potential competitors but also because you want that you can't build great products unless your own people believe in it and so your own people have to see no we are actually this is what we're doing and we're committed to doing this thing well and we're not going to allow the way we go about doing this being sort of swayed by other business interests. So I think that's it's the getting and building that internal part is going to be a challenge because in these analytics products, you're building something that is in some sense, I don't know if it's exactly larger than the sum of its parts, but it's harder, it's it's a hard thing for everyone in the organization to completely grasp how the whole thing works in a sense and really the process behind it so constant clear communication about what we're doing why we're running experiments why decisions we've made that the sort of may not seem optimal but that the best of the you know, the options in front of us and how that's heading taking us where we want to go so constant communication about that kind of thing helps to build that internal culture so everyone can see yes we are you know like things are not always is perfect, but we're constantly heading towards, in our case, better measurement system.
0: Hi there, dear listener. I just want to quickly let you know that I have recently published a book with six other authors called Demystifying AI for the Enterprise, a playbook for digital transformation. If you'd like to learn more about the book, then head over to www.leadersofanalytics.com slash AI. Now back to the show.
1: And then the second sort of set of challenges are the more external ones because you'll find, and this is something our sales team encounters on a daily basis, what is the knowledge level of the people you're dealing with, what's their expectations and or opinions and or biases about these kind of things and that can be all over the shop so you have to have a suite of strategies that will help convince someone that your analytics product is actually going to fulfill their needs so for some people there's a couple of extremes for some people it's going to have to be an independent test where they're in control of the testing outcomes so they can see that your black box as you say actually does what you say it's going to do. And ultimately, that's always the best in to some extent because the alternative is starting to open the black box and any analytics company is not going to completely open it because there's too much proprietary stuff in there. So the next part is how much do you open the box? You only want to do that... The amount you do that, it depends on who you're dealing with on the client side. If they're really sophisticated, then you can sort of open it quite a long way as as you'll have this sort of baseline of things we know we can't reveal because they're too proprietary to us. But you want to be able to reveal enough that demonstrates to the most sophisticated clients, oh, these guys are actually running the right experiments. They're actually validating everything and every decision in this process is well thought out and I can trust them. So that's kind of the two broad personas you might deal with, people who need to see something in the box to understand that it actually works versus people who don't care what's in the box. They just want to see the sausage that comes out the other end.
0: I think I've met both types of personalities in my career. So that's clear, John. I've got a couple of questions left for you. Now, this one is a little bit of a big one, the next one, because you're a machine learning as a product business. But we also have typically the situation where we have these very data-heavy businesses in traditional industries. So banks, insurance, telco, utilities, manufacturing, healthcare, professional services, stuff that was around before the internet, basically, but nevertheless is, is digitized and, and very data-heavy. They use data to, with varying success to try and optimize their existing operations, but we don't really see very often the creation of whole new business models or products in these industries, even though because they're so data heavy and because they're so the industries I mentioned there, they're so omnipresent in our lives that the potential has to be there. What do you think is required for these businesses to actually break? The- that seal and be truly innovative
1: with machine learning? It's a difficult one. In, in fact, you could almost summarize the modern history. Of I guess corporate capitalism as innovative young companies get big and bigger and bigger and stagnant until someone comes along and takes their market from underneath them. I mean, that would be if you had to sort of do a crayon sketch of how capitalism functions at a corporate level, that's it. So, and there's a bunch of interesting anecdotes of leaders who've been aware of that and have taken actions to try and mitigate it. So I think there's an IBM story about trying to sort of start a separate division around desktop machines. I I think get most of the details at the top of my head, but the, I think the core idea is recognizing that it's that the more comp, larger and complicated an organization is, it's hard to be agile the way startups are going to be. So having the ability to create, either fund those startups completely externally or have them somewhat segregated from your core business, to build technologies that you can partially own that are a potential threat to your organization it seems to be probably the most tried and true. I mean, anyone in sort of, I guess, innovation and strategy in big corporate, I'm not telling them anything they don't know when I say that. But I think it's a lesson that many companies seem to not know it. So it's something that needs to be said more often. I think the other thing that you, you see sometimes is that there are organizations that are able to do things orthogonal to their Main business in a way that can be interesting and innovative. So there's an example from Germany, I believe. This is not a perfect example for what you're asking because it was it was an online site that was doing, I think, auto sales, but someone inside that organisation realised that the data that they collected about the sales of cars and their various details would actually be invaluable to insurance companies to sort of note who are trying to value cars based on a bunch of details about them, their age and mileage, et cetera, that kind of thing. And so they started a whole sort of separate branch of the organisation building, Reporting analytics for insurance companies that sort of that was effectively a new cash flow that was built off their existing data sets. Now, that's pretty hard for most large corporates, mostly because of the kind of privacy concerns. I mean, it's hard for banks or insurance companies to do that, but there have been examples where other big corporates have done that. So I think it was Singtel in Singapore managed to create an additional sort of startup that used their aggregated cellular data to provide mapping information about movement of people on say roads and the subway system etc so you could they could use that for sort of potentially urban planning and I'm not sure who the other kind of downstream customers were but in in that case it's large-scale data that isn't particularly privacy sensitive at least at an aggregated level that has other utility beyond that. Yeah
0: and you're highlighting something which Potentially is a flaw in my question that when you actually dig under the hood, there is more there than meets the eye in terms of productizing data. It's not necessarily as consumer friendly, if I call it that. It's not, it's your product. It's not sort of neatly tied up with a bow on it in a software solution, but it nevertheless is using that data for a a secondary purpose that can be quite valuable and i know that a lot of banks are doing this in the last 10 to 15 years that's been a growing value proposition for corporate and institutional banking to kind of help with benchmarking and comparison of your business versus nondescript competitors so let's say that mcdonald's wants to know where they where they can put their next restaurant well uh, where do we find customers that are like the ones that are around where the really successful ones are and how many competitors do we have in an area and, and so on, right? So so that sort of a geographical analysis can be really powerful when you can combine the revenue data from the corporate and institutional arm of a bank with the spend data from the consumer bank. So this is for organizations that are large enough to be a representation of the market as a whole. So, So stuff like that is going on. But we're not sort of, uh, again, I have to be careful what I say, because I'm sure someone will find a great example of of the opposite being true. But we're not seeing lots of AI solutions that are sort of a business to consumer in those industries necessarily. Uh, although there are bits and pieces under the hood that we don't see. John, we are towards the end. I have two questions for you. Before we finish up, uh, first one that I always ask of guests on the show is to pay it forward. I'm going to ask you who you would like to see as the next guest on Leaders of Analytics and why.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I would say... Luis Pizzato. I I should have checked every single one of your episodes to make sure that he hadn't already appeared on here. I don't think he has, though. Yeah, so he is a data scientist, leads a sort of leads team, mentors a bunch of people inside the Commonwealth Bank. He's done many, many different things in his career. He's a great public speaker, and he's got a lot of interesting anecdotes about real kind of human centric problems the bank's helping to solve. So I think he'd, that could sort of be a good segue, actually, from your last question as to interesting, innovative things a bank can do with their data that, that are good for consumers.
0: Yeah, and if there were one organization to mention that actually is doing something, it would be Commonwealth Bank. They are, in Australia, definitely the leaders in in using AI machine learning for customer centricity. So great suggestion, John, and I will check out Lewis's profile and get in touch with him. Mm-hmm. And lastly, John, where can people find out more about you, get a hold of your content and connect with you?
1: Yeah, so a couple of things. I mean, connecting with me on LinkedIn is always great. I'm always sort of um, happy to chat with people about things things there. And we're always, you know, as I'm interviewing and hiring, it's a great place to connect with me. I also have, you can go to Getting Data Science Done which is a sort of website for promoting my book, which is about, I guess, some of the themes that we've talked spoken about here today, predominantly about those kind of things about the art of asking questions and drilling into problems and the kinds of things that are, I guess, things that can go wrong with data science projects that are not necessarily about the technology.
0: Yeah, so listeners, go and connect with John on LinkedIn and do check out his book, Getting Data Science Done. It's one of those books that you can judge by its cover because it uh, does what it says inside. So, thank you. Do you want to learn how to get data science done? Then that's one to check out. John Hoggins, thank you so much for being on Leaders of Analytics today. It's been a real pleasure to learn more about you, more about ad tech and just more about how we can get more out of data science in today's world of business.
1: Awesome. Thank you, Jonas. It's been great.
0: Hi, dear listener. Just a quick note from me before you go. If you enjoyed this show, then please don't forget to subscribe to future episodes via your favorite podcast app. I have loads more great stuff coming your way. Also, I'd love some feedback from you on this show. So please, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening and catch you soon.